Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Uh, a lot of people right now in Congress are coming to the realization uh, that it's going to take some time before uh, Republicans can fully implement uh, a repeal of Obamacare. Not only is it going to take a while, but it will actually be incredibly complicated. Uh, but there are some steps that the new Republican-led uh, administration can take in order to limit Obamacare. Uh, for a look at what those may be, I want to bring in Zachary Tracer of Bloomberg News, who covers uh, the healthcare sector. Zach, what are some of the measures that Republican uh, aides are talking about doing right uh, when President-elect Trump assumes office? That's right. So uh, folks in D.C. Are, are starting to realize that it's going to take a while to repeal Obamacare, and they're looking at what ways they can use regulations uh, or, or changing regulations to sort of chip away at uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, over the next uh, few months and few years. So one big target uh, of that push has been uh, the benefits under the ACA. So figuring out ways to limit uh, some of what's covered in ways that might bring down the cost of plans or, or get rid of things that uh, some uh, on the right really don't like, uh, things like contraceptive coverage, for instance. Hey, Zachary, what about the idea of repealing it but not repealing it? You repeal it in name because it's a politically expedient thing to do. But on the other hand, you kind of leave in place many of the exchanges because I understand that more than 6 million people have signed up for Obamacare policies through the federal exchanges. And that's 400,000 more than had selected policies a year ago. I beg your pardon, 6.4 million people. That's a record. That's right. So we're seeing uh, signups proceed pretty much at pace. I think right after uh, the election of Donald Trump, there was some worry that maybe people wouldn't sign up, you know, given all the rhetoric about this law is going away, we're going to repeal it. But it turns out that so far, uh, signups are on pace and the government th uh, has said they think 13.8 uh, million people will ultimately sign up by the deadline at the end of January. So if some of these benefits are cut, would it lower costs for the actual uh, people who are getting the insurance plans, or would it lower the cost just for the government? You know, that's a really good question. So they, they talk about cutting these benefits in part as a way to, to limit costs. So if you take uh, coverage out of— Wait, wait, cost to the government? Well, it's, it's, it's both. So the, the government pays for a, a big piece of, of the ACA plans, uh, gives subsidies to individuals with low incomes. The individual mandate. Uh, that's right. So yeah. individuals do have to buy uh, health insurance under the law. Um, and, and the government gives them subsidies to, to help them do that. So what cutting these benefits would do, theoretically, is maybe uh, lower the cost of this health insurance. The big open question is, what do you cut? And we, we should be really clear about this, because these essential benefits are things like hospitalization. They're things like your doctor's visits, labs, uh, pregnancy and maternity care, um, you know, emergency services. So these are, you know, the question is, as one person put it to us, you know, where's the fluff? What are uh, Republicans really going to cut? And that remains to be seen. What's um, let's say they do make some of these cuts, even the ones that are more politically fraught, like contraception. Um, what are the chances that a Republican administration might maintain some uh, incarnation of Obamacare once it has been sort of neutered in certain ways? So what we're hearing right now is it looks like, very broadly speaking, 
uh, there's going to be an immediate push to do a repeal of Obamacare and delay uh, big pieces of that for several years to give lawmakers time to come up with a replacement. So you could see uh, Obamacare persist either in full or in some sort of limited form for at least uh, two years, maybe three or even four years, some have said, uh, as, as uh, lawmakers work to figure out what's next. What about the ratios that exist for premiums? Because I understand that if you use the ratio that currently exists, this is a regulation. This is not something that you can just you know quickly get a, get away with. And aren't they going to try to avoid any kind of filibuster? I mean, that would ultimately maybe die in in the in the Senate. Right. So a big reason that Republicans want to uh, repeal the law using uh, what's called reconciliation, uh, using the budget process in, instead of um, you know a full Senate vote is they only need 51 votes. It lets them avoid a, a filibuster. So you know with with a pretty split Senate, um, it'll be tough to to figure out how to replace this law in a way that you can get to 60 votes. I want to thank you very much for coming in and spending time with us. Uh, Zachary Tracer is our healthcare reporter for Bloomberg, giving us some insight into uh, the Obamacare Affordable Care Act and what it's likely to look like under President-elect Donald Trump and, uh, and the Republican it's going to be, Congress. It's going to be pretty complicated to uh, unravel this thing, and so it's going to be interesting to see how they chip away at it. That's why you have to follow Zachary uh, at, uh, on Twitter at ZTracer, T-R-A-C. Thanks very much. All right, here to tell us a little bit more about where to put our money is David Kotak. He is the chairman and the chief investment officer at Cumberland Advisors. David Kotak, how are you, sir? I'm terrific, and I think we should have an index that samples New York City's finest cheesecake. Aww. I'm willing to volunteer. Terrific, Aww. terrific conversation. All right. <laughs> well, you. You, 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 while, while you track cheesecake, I'm interested in tracking investments. Uh, can, where do you want to start? You want to do bonds first? Tell us uh, whether this bond sell-off means it's time to buy or should you stay away? I'm looking at the 10-year right now at 253 and the 30-year at 310. We're getting a little bit of a bid on both of them. Yeah. Um, uh, we in our shop are not buyers of treasury, intermediate, or long here. We think there is more likely a little higher rate sometime next year, possibly even to a three on the 10-year. We are buyers of high-grade tax freeze. When high-grade tax freeze sold off, they sold off twice as viciously as the taxable treasury bond, they went from 85 to 90 percent of the treasury yield to currently 130 percent of the treasury yield. I don't care what Donald Trump does with the tax code, it's highly unlikely it's going to be completely repealed. So a 4 percent high-grade tax-free is in the market today, even as the treasury backed up 50 basis points long Muni's over 100, and they're a bargain. Yeah, you know, this has been um, an ongoing kind of question out there. Are Muni's oversold? Municipal bonds sold off dramatically after President-elect Trump uh, won the U.S. election because there was this idea that lower mm -hmm. taxes, particularly for uh, wealthier people, would reduce the appeal for these tax-free municipal bonds. Talking mm -hmm. about municipal bonds, so I want to talk about Puerto Rico. I know, David, that you have a strategy that focuses specifically on 
Puerto Rican bonds. And we got news uh, that that Puerto Rico is now facing a budget shortfall of $67.5 billion over the next decade. That's almost $10 billion more than previously projected by the island's governor. Um, at this point, would you be a buyer of Puerto Rican bonds or do you think that this is just sort of a, a, a just a quagmire that is not worth it? Oh, it's a terrible quagmire, Lisa. We we believe in that. The only bonds that we will own in Puerto Rico are very specific insured bonds and those that have internal credit structures that are, have to be researched. There's $70 billion in debt, as you know, outstanding in Puerto Rico, and we go through every insurance contract, every bond indenture, and every cross-collateral claim. That's the only way to participate in Puerto Rico debt. And if you don't dig deep into the weeds, it's better to avoid it. If you'd have the resources, then there's opportunity. We have some Puerto Rico bonds which have three and four layers of credit enhancement in addition to the claim on a Puerto Rico agency, but you've really got to do the detail work to do it. The politics of the island have to change. And whether it's $60 billion or $70 billion forward budget deficits, the notion is it's big and it requires political change. And it will be imposed on them by the board that will now run Puerto Rico's finances instead of the local government. David, can I just take you to uh, muni bonds just to, uh, to complete that? I want to understand a little bit more. What kind of maturity are you talking about? Because I'm looking at a 10-year in California, 2.71, 10-year in New York, 2.47. Are those the kinds of bonds that you're talking about? Well, those bonds, those bonds are competing uh, virtually at parity with yield on the Treasuries. But if you go longer on the curve, all the way out to 30... Well, that's what I wanted to know. 30, you want to go 30 for California, 3.63, New York, 3.4? Uh, I would go 30 years in Muniland today when the yield is higher than the taxable Treasury. Absolutely. I think if you take a Californian at a maximum new tax bracket, 25, 30, 33, whatever it's going to be, plus California taxes, you gross up to a return that is very appealing for high-grade credit. You know, how concerned, David, are you about the uh, looming pension crisis, or at least that's what many people believe? We have California's uh, biggest pension, actually the, the biggest public pension in the U.S., CalPERS, saying this week – basically that it was probably going to lower its assumed rate of return over the next few decades to 7% from 7.5%. A lot of people think that this still is a, an unrealistic target. As a result, California will probably have to add $2 billion per year to this fund. Aren't you concerned about this? Of course I am. I, I, it's the unfunded liabilities of state and local governments and others are, are huge. California, which was at one point a triple B credit, has taken steps to improve its financing. And a realistic reduction of the earnings assumption to bring it in line with markets is another positive step. And added funding is another positive step. The worst state is Illinois. New Jersey's not far behind. Other states which have difficulties include Connecticut, Kentucky, Louisiana. We have states in gradations in our shop, and there are states like Illinois, general obligation debt. We will not own it for a client.
closed-end bond funds, are they attractive? Uh, maybe, but you've got to look at what's inside. As we both know, Pim, uh, what's in the fund is Yeah, the, what the, the details are, rel- you know, the devil's in the details. Always, always is. Stocks? Ah, now we have the major question. Every dollar cut in the 35% corporate tax rate equates to about a dollar, dollar and a quarter permanent shift of additional earnings in the S&P 500 index. If that rate's going to go from 35 to 20 or 25, and you're going to permanently add 10, 12, or $15 year after year to S&P 500 earnings, then you have to say, I need to reconsider the valuation of the stock market. What the details will be in that tax code change is another devil that hasn't been revealed. All right, and we got right now a price-earnings uh, ratio for the S&P 500 of 21 with a dividend yield of about uh, 2%. So I guess that would change all of that as well. David Kotek, I- I'm so glad you could join us. It was the tweet that sent alarms all over the Twitter sphere. And potentially beyond, President-elect Donald Trump yesterday tweeted that the United States must greatly strengthen and expand its nuclear capability until such time as the world comes to its senses regarding nukes. Uh, That prompted many people to have uh, some catastrophic responses, including the uh, circulation of a nuke map where you could figure out how you would be affected by a nuclear bomb. I want to bring in for some perspective and some real talk, George Ferguson, senior aerospace and defense analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, George, what did you make of of sort of President-elect Trump's insinuation that the U.S. would be rebuilding its nuclear stop stockpile. Uh, so, good morning. So I think that um, a lot of this work was probably going to get done anyways under um, under potential President uh, Hillary Clinton, too. You know, there's a number of, you know, we have a triad. We have, uh, we have ballistic missiles, nuclear missiles on ships, airplanes, and uh, ground-based. And a, a number of the triad are uh, worn out, I'd say, having been built a lot of it in the Reagan era. And I think we, we had to upgrade it anyways. The ships are, the, the submarines are, the, are the, I think, the most prominent of that span. There's been some discussion about uh, revamping those submarines. Uh, and so uh, I think, frankly, that Hillary Clinton would have done the same thing. And I, so I don't really get the sense that uh, a president-elect Trump is going to go further than sort of the, the way the current um, the deterrent stockpile looks. But I think he was just reinforcing the idea that he, he is going to spend money on, that, on this, those programs. George, let's turn our attention now to another defense program. This is the Joint Strike Fighter, the F-35, and the request, or at least the mention on Twitter by President-elect Donald Trump to put together, or at least to have Boeing put together, a competing bid for a competing aircraft to update the F-18. Can you explain what this is all about? Yeah, I think he's looking for opportunities to to foster more competition. I think he I think he is committed to spending defense money and I think he'll probably spend more defense money than 
President Obama uh, did just just because of sequestering other challenges inside the defense budget. Um, but I think he wants more bang for his buck, to use the old expression, which I guess aptly fits here. And so I, I think he really wants to find a way to foster more competition. We've gotten to the point now where we only have a handful of defense primes. They, they get a bit specialized in what they do, and we're not getting as much competition as we had back in the days of the of Yeah, the but George, let's just say specifically about this, this particular program, because, I mean, the total defense budget is like $622 billion. That was this, this year, right? Yeah. That's yep. 40% of the global total is spent by the United States, right? So $622 billion going to defense. This program, the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, it's the only plane I understand that the Marine Corps flies— uh, the Air Force doesn't even fly the uh, is not interested in flying the F-18. So why would you come out and say you want a proposal to update the F-18 when two of the three branches of service don't even use it? Well, and that's what I was saying. I think there's a bit of um, posturing going on here. I don't think the F-18 could be upgraded, changed, altered to perform the mission. Uh, you know, an Air Force strike fighter mission um, or the Marine Corps vertical lift mission, right? The Marine Corps uses the vertical lift Harriers. So I think he's trying to get a wedge in here to try to find a way to drive down costs. But Lockheed right now is the only game in town when it comes to fifth generation fighters. And and that's a challenge. George, I'm wondering, the people who you're talking to, how concerned are they that President-elect Trump is taking some of these issues, which are a, a matter of national security, to Twitter? Uh, you know, uh, it's definitely interesting days. Uh, I don't think anybody's uh, terribly uh, disturbed by it, but it's uh, definitely interesting days. It, it seems like public posturing. Well, the, but I mean, the reason being that, you know, yesterday's Twitter post about nuclear weapons certainly had a pretty big reaction globally, and there were concerns that we we're going to be restarting the Cold War, uh, you know. I'm just wondering. I and mean, it certainly helped the stocks of some uranium companies. Yeah, for, I mean, there you go. Right? I mean, for example, yeah. I was looking at uranium resources. It was up 31% after this tweet. Yeah, I mean, I guess the challenge here, too, is we still live in a world where Russia Russia has nuclear weapons. Other countries around the world have nuclear weapons. So we're definitely not going to abandon them, whether it belonged on Twitter. Um, you know, that's a different debate. But, uh, again, I think we thought that the money was going to get spent anyways. It's a function of how much. That's, that's, honestly, um, I really appreciate the perspective, George, because I think it's important to have a sort of realistic look at what is going on, you know, whether this really does indicate a restarting of uh, the nuclear arms race or whether this is just simply a, a, a chest-pounding exercise for something that we would have already done. Yeah. Yeah. I, Good point. That was my take. Well, I mean, and also it uh, brings into question the whole issue of whether our allies are going to continue to buy the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, right? I mean, Canada has already delayed what they they say they were going to buy it. Now uh, the new uh, prime minister there saying mm, maybe not they're going to upgrade the F-18. And uh, we know that other countries like Israel, they're already taking delivery of the F-35. And that's a major uh, defense project. Thanks very much. George Ferguson, he is Senior Aerospace and Defense Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence.
One of the big stories of the year, in my opinion, has been the tremendous increase in LIBOR rates in the U.S. In other words, the, uh, the the rate the banks charge each other to borrow dollars has risen to the highest level since 2009. This is largely due to money market reform, uh, and this same brand of money market reform may be coming to Europe. I want to bring in Henley Smith, Senior Vice President at Vanderbilt Avenue Asset Management in Greenwich, Connecticut. He's here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Henley, uh, let us, tell us what First of all, just give us an update. How is the money market reform implementation going? And do you expect LIBOR rates to continue to climb from here as a result of them? Yeah, well, first, for ha- thanks for having me in. Uh, yeah, the implementation went uh, fairly smoothly. No hiccups, as we could see. But I think that trade's still unfolding and will continue to unfold because we haven't had any of these funds uh, test those new rules uh, but I will say uh, in the LIBOR thing that obviously since November 8th, the trade has definitely gone from fear to greed. And we're seeing that being reflected in the, in, in the LIBOR rates that they pushed up to 1% this week. And I think that's something we talked about last time I was here. We expect expected that and we continue to expect to see that move. And I think that's a big reason for that is because of you've seen a massive movement out of some of these prime money market funds, which they invest in commercial paper and other types of instruments that are based on LIBOR. And so the demand for those instruments has really uh, dried up. And that's what one of the reasons why LIBOR rates are pushing up very high. Henley, just to review, if we can, some of the most important aspects of this money market reform. Prime institutional money market funds, those that are investing in short-term corporate debt, right? This yes. is what you described. Yes. Uh, as well as uh, institutional municipal money market funds, they have to allow the value of their shares to fluctuate, to Correct. reflect the current market price, right? That's absolutely right. I, I don't think that that's a problem. I think that that sheds more transparency on the fact that these are investment accounts, not savings accounts, which I think a lot of investors, retail in particular, thought that they were, you know, safe, liquid, all those things, which they are, but they are investment portfolios. But your money can actually be locked up if there is a big move in volatility, perhaps. That's correct. The, 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 the SEC will require some of these funds, the prime funds, admissible funds that we've talked about, to actually gate or uh, stop redemptions for the matter of 30 days. And that could be a a tremendous amount of of problems. So you're seeing a lot of corporate treasurers who typically invest in these prime money market funds move out. So you've had a massive movement out of prime money market funds into U.S. government-only money market funds. And uh, as I said, I think that that trade is still going to unfold over the next year if any of these funds do get any kind of liquidity stress, how these rules will actually play out. You know, so the U.S. rules have been largely implemented, whether the effects will continue to be seen. Henley, you're saying they probably will, but it will be, it sounds like, orderly, uh, much to the, it's difference. Uh, it, there, was a, there was a fear that it could be somewhat disorderly. Uh, that said, the European Union is about to impose their own set of money market reform rules, and uh, it might be somewhat disruptive. What rate are you looking at for those new rules to affect? And, you know, how do investors trade around that? Well, again, yeah, I think those those rules, similar to the U.S., will come into play over the next year or two. Um, it, it will be interesting because you have an EU that's in flux, uh, you know, with the Italian bank in the headlines this week uh, being rescued by the Italian government. Um, you know, how are the... I, I, basically, I have a lot of prospects slash clients that are very concerned about European money market funds because a lot of them invest in financial instruments, financial commercial paper, CDs, those types of things. So as those rules get 
uh, implemented, uh, and if we still have some concerns about the banking system in the EU, uh, I think there could be some real hiccups here. So, yeah, we'll continue to look at LIBOR. I, my guess is that we'll have a similar type of, uh, of, of movement out of these funds that are affected, and that could create some dislocations, uh, which I think, uh, you know, for investors like myself, it's not such a bad thing. It's an anomaly that I can take advantage of. I how would you do in. that? Explain how would you would do well, that? Well, right now, we've got two ways. I mean, we do that through separately managed accounts, and we have also have a private cash management trust that we've set up for investors that is actually stepping into the vacuum that's been created so by what do you buy? Movement. Can you give us an example of something that is unpopular, that you've seen these outflows, right. that you might be able to take advantage well, of because two things, uh, you know, commercial paper being one, because U.S. government funds can't invest in commercial paper, obviously. So that that's created a, a dislocation or an anomaly that you've seen the spreads between the risk-free curve and the and LIBOR sp- spread widen to its broadest level we've seen. And, and I should just say, so commercial paper is sort of the short-term loans that companies take out That's and correct. used to rely upon uh, for just their liquidity needs and was very popular and has shrunk uh, substantially as the a market as the demand has Demand gone down. has shrunk. So you've seen those rates move up. Uh, those investors that pr- invest primarily in money market funds, prime, you know, are not in that market now. So that gives investors like myself a real opportunity to move into that market, either through separately managed accounts or private cash management trust, that we can take advantage of those yields without all the restrictions that the redemption rules are, are now presenting to the investors. And with respect to Europe, uh, so earlier this month, the Council of the European Union uh, approved rules on locally domiciled money market funds. They'll impose stricter liquidity requirements and limit redemptions, among other measures. Henley, I was struck by your talking about the fact that there are European financial instruments in these money market funds. Um, what kind of dislocation could we see in this market, uh, not only as these new rules come on board, but also as uh, potentially banking issues increase in that region? Yeah, well, the two things you have to look at are just absolute yields as they spread versus a risk-free curve, the U.S. Treasuries as an example, and the bid between the where you can buy and where you can sell to the bid and ask. As those widen out, there could be some problems, and that's just an expression of liquidity. And one of the things in the real paradox of these rules is you've got liquidity, money markets, and it's all of a sudden it's locked up for 30 days or whatever. Um, that creates a real concern for a lot of investors. So I could see the similar type of thing happening. And with the banking uh, system being a little bit more uh, in flux in Europe. Now, remember, again, a I, little. <laughs> well, well are you buying? Better. Are you buying European money markets? Or are you staying? No, we're away? staying domestic right now. We want to see how these rules un- unfold uh, before we step into that market again. I think we'll just we'll be focused on the prime space. But we have to remember as well. Uh, you know, the last I saw, twelve trillion dollars of sovereign debt is negative still. So how that plays into this whole equation is going to be very interesting as these rules get get phased in. Thanks very much. Henley Smith of Vanderbilt Avenue Asset Management. They're based in Greenwich, Connecticut. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.